Welcome to Plato's Gravity, a homebrew podcast. This is Aaron. And I've got a secret. Is is it your name? Maybe. Jason, just tell us your name. I'm Jason. Hey, on this episode, we welcome Joe Clark from the Grist Homebrew Club in Arlington, Virginia. Joe is an award-winning homebrewer, having taken first place with his Schwartz beer in the 2016 D.C. Homebrewers Club Cherry Blossom Competition, and has collected two silver medals in various competitions for his triple. He recently gave a presentation on the science of mashing. We'll be sure to cover conversion, enzymes, troubleshooting, and decoctions, but first, I think we should open a beer. Before I introduce the beer that you chose for the show, I, I have a quick question. Are you ready? I'm ready. Have you had a chance to see the naming convention that we use for our podcast episodes? Uh, no, I haven't noticed that. I've seen the podcast titles, but I didn't catch the convention. Okay, so uh, Jason, how do we name our episodes? Uh, so the it's two halves. The, the second half is the name of the person we're talking to. So that'll be your name. That'll be Joe Clark. All right. And that's in the middle. There's a preposition. It's with. <laughs> okay. And then before that is the name of the beer that we drank <laughs> with said person. So, uh, Aaron, what what's the title of this episode? I mean, I don't know if you planned this, Joe, but the title of this show will be Big Red Cock with Joe Clark. <laughs> so... Since you didn't plan that, Joe, why did you uh, choose this beer for the show? <laughs> uh, well, my daughter brought me uh, some samples of this a while back. From uh, She lives in Chicago, and she uh, was visiting home and uh, always brings some of the local beers to give me a, a chance to sample those. And, and this one seemed pretty interesting. It, it sort of blends the... Um, artisanal Belgian flavors with a uh, heavy dose of hops. I'm, I'm not a hop head, but I do appreciate the balancing between it, uh, the hops and the yeast flavors on this. So that was my rationale behind picking it. Then I thought it also might be easier for you guys to get it. So. And actually, uh, we talked about a little bit before the show. It was actually kind of tough to get. Uh, it was distributed in Indiana on draft, but not in, in cans. But it ended up being it's so a- hard to find a big red cock. Yeah, <laughs> damn it, Jason. Uh, but no, uh, our buddy, uh, our buddy Adam picked some up on his travels, and then he also picked up a whole bunch of other beers. So thank you, Adam. Yeah, thanks, Adam. And uh, okay, so what do we what do we think about this? I think the uh, I think Joe kind of nailed it. It's it, it's pretty hoppy, and usually the hoppy stuff gets rid of all the yeast stuff for me in beers. But there's the, the yeast, it has a nice yeast character that you don't get a lot in a, in a mm. hoppy beer. It's maybe a little mild for me and aaron and i actually tried one of their other beers yesterday which do you remember which one that was i was i think we just called the farmhouse okay so this is the hoppy farmhouse and the the farmhouse itself i think was slightly more funky and i kind of like that yeah i don't know i don't know if this has had any brett in it or not the well if it well, ha- and i don't necessarily mean like brett funk but like because like a farmhouse ale you're thinking about like uh, i can just i just imagine like an old woman stirring mash in a bucket once a week while it just spoils in the open air and then like professional brewers have taken that flavor and cleaned it up and that's what i usually expect out of a farmhouse ale that's a weird description but imagine like a really gross giant boat paddle but not the boat paddle that there's a lost episode reference. We apologize. So uh, we had a, I started our, saying it out loud, and I was like, our, "Oh no!" Our last episode, Joe, uh, we didn't hit the record button on, and there was a really fun mash paddle 
boat or <laughs> scenario that Jason was just calling back to. Anyway, uh, is this beer tasting for you like it did uh, the first time you had it? Yeah, it did. Uh, it, it holds up pretty well. Uh, so, I, yeah, I think it's about my the way I was expecting it. We want to get into your the mashing presentation you recently gave at the Grist Homebrew Club. So, can you talk? I mean, let, let's start with the the. Let's try to help our listeners who are just starting and kind of go all the way up through those who might be interested in some advanced techniques. So, if I was Starting today, homebrewing, or maybe I had done a couple extract batches. I mean, what would you say would be your advice to someone who's just getting into doing a, a mash? Like, what what are you what are you keeping in mind? Is there equipment that you think you need? The reality is that the equipment can vary all over the place, and it's not enough to be anything more sophisticated than a a kettle and a bag, well, and perhaps, uh, you get going on it. Perhaps an old uh, woman with a bucket and a paddle. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. In, in a barn, by the way. In yes, a barn. It's very specific to be. It's not a farmhouse if there's not a barn. <laughs> this is in the style guidelines. I saw it there. Okay. So, okay, you're, you're starting up kind of, uh, uh, I would say, e- equipment equipment neutral. Like, what, what are the mistakes that you think uh, new brewers might commonly make in their first mash? What I find is uh, really the thing that gets people crazy is that they try to be very exact and get everything lined up properly, and they basically get caught up in all the little details and forget that the real purpose of the whole thing is to get a bunch of sugars out that your yeast can work on. Right, right. And it's not going to be an exact science. They they try and say, if I go two degrees above this, I'm dead. Mm. I might as well throw the batch. And you have to realize that what you're aiming at is sort of a target, and there's a whole bunch of stuff going on above and beyond that target level. So there's, there's stuff is going to happen. And the biggest thing you need to realize is just relax and do it and keep good notes on what you did so you can figure out what to change in the future. Hmm. Absolutely. So what do you use when uh, when you take notes? I use Beer Smith. Beer Smith too. And then what are you what are you looking for like as you take notes? What are the key things that you're writing down on a brew day? All right. Well, look, obviously the, the the base thing, you know, the recipe, the the grist, mm-hmm. uh, the grain, grain bill, the plan for the mash. You know, what temperature am I going at? What time period? How many different steps am I going to make in there? Mm-hmm. And then what I want to be recording is my pH, okay, and sure. then my uh, specific gravity in steps along the way. I want to know what's happening when when things are going on. Okay, so when you're measuring specific gravity through through the mash, what what are you using? Are you using a refractometer, or are you pulling samples for a hygrometer? Yeah, I, well, I have. I guess somebody expressed it right. I have trust issues. <laughs> so I use a refractometer for most of my readings, but then I verify it with a hygrometer reading. Okay. We actually just got on the uh, refractometer boat. Yeah. Um, as I, of I, literally today. Yeah. Amazon.com sent it to me, and we I have a beer in the basement that I really want to check the gravity on, but I cannot yet because I don't have any distilled water with which to calibrate my refractometer, and I, too, have trust issues. <laughs> the refractometer needs to be calibrated a number of times as you're going along. It doesn't hold that long. Sure. And so you got to be aware of that. And the other thing is don't worry about the refractometer giving an exact reading. What sure. you're looking for is just some trending and what's happening with things. How is it progressing? Is it converting the sugars? What's what's happening along the way? Mm. 
realize that you're going to get a close answer with that, but maybe not necessarily a definitive one. Sure. So this is a question I have because we, we haven't been able to take – Jason and I haven't taken readings during the match before. We just don't have the tools, and it's way, way too uh, too much work to – pull samples into a graduated cylinder during the mash. That's, I don't think anyone's doing it. If you're doing that, by the way, we'd like you to email the show and tell us about your process. <laughs> uh, so at the end of your mash and before you've removed the grain from from the mash, mm-hmm. um, is there a difference in your gravity reading? Like, you know, are you going to get your your specific gravity? Let's say you're shooting for, you know, a, a, 10, oh, 10, a, a 1050 beer. You know, are you looking for that gravity to be at like 1054, 1056 before you pull the grain? Or do you find that it stabilizes even as you're, as you're, possibly losing grain in the in or sugar in the grain i'm looking i want to reach my target my mm-hmm. um my uh, pre-boiled target i want to reach that and then i may go be go later than that now it depends on keep in mind the specific gravity is only one measure sure the other big part of it is what's the composition of those sugars are they very simple sugars like maltose, or are they more complex ones that are not going to ferment as well? Right. Mm. And that's a critical aspect and the whole reason you pick your temperatures. What I would say is in most of the, the grain today, in within 15 to 20 minutes, you'll have converted everything that you need. If you're going for a very, if you go on a high temperature. Okay. If you're at a high temperature, it's only going to take 10, 15 minutes to get everything converted. But then what's going on is enzymes are still working on what's been converted and chopping it into smaller pieces. So if you want to get something that's going to dry out, mm. then that's where you need to go a longer time. And you're typically going to be at a lower temperature, which means there's less energy, so you got to even longer than that so you, mm-hmm. you so if you're looking for like a sweet stout and you're gonna you're gonna mash that around 158 or 160 you feel like that mash could be a lot shorter oh yeah i mean that that could be uh, 20 minutes be a safe number to use on that so do you is that is that in practice do you do you just if you're making a stout are you 20 minutes and out or do you have a longer brew day just for good measure and flowing over i'm, I'm re- taking my readings Sure. So I'll do my Riftometer reading. And again, if I'm doing a sweet stout, then I'm going to get something that's going to be a lot more non-fermentables in there. Mm. So I'm not worried about what the beta amylase is doing. I'm worried about what the alpha and the limit dextrose is doing because they're going to be chopping up the big pieces. And I don't want a whole lot of little pieces of sugar in there. Right. So I go at my higher temperature. As soon as I get to that specific gravity, then I'm willing to say, okay, I've done that now. This is actually really helpful for, for Jason and I. So we we just we have been brewing the bag brewers, and we wanted to uh, kind of step up our volume a little bit. So Jason brought over a cooler, and we did like a brew in a bag and a cooler type situation. Yeah. Um, so we didn't, you know, you had to give away a little control because no longer can you, you can't, you can't light the yeah, cooler on there's fire. No, there's no refire. Yeah. Yeah. And actually our, our bag wasn't big enough for the cooler. So we ended up just mashing in the cooler and then we used, you know, we did like a brew in a bag method. Can we call it a satchel? Can we call it brewing a satchel? Brewing a satchel. So we're brewing in a in a satchel, except we didn't have a satchel. It was a satchelless. It was a satchelless <laughs> brew. So we just drink. We we had the water grain ratio the same as it would be for brewing a bag. So a lot of water. We put all the water in, yeah. no sparge. Drain it out, and the efficiency was super low, and we were really disappointed. Didn't have a refractometer, but no. based on what you're saying now, I felt like we just maybe left some sugar in the grain bed. But it seems like we just didn't mash long enough. Because we were mashing yeah, it like it was, a, it was a Kolsch, so we were mashing it like 148. Oh, well, yeah. So there, if, if you're down at that range, then you're going to have to go 
in most cases, mm. uh, probably about 90 minutes. Okay. Because you need to get you need to give it enough time, number one, to get the sugars out, but then make sure that whatever sugars are coming out are chopped up into the smaller pieces that are going to attenuate and dry out. I'm going to have to try that that beer again. So one of your inspirations you mentioned to do this mashing education piece for your homebrew club was that you came uh, kind of to our neck of the woods for a, uh, a brew your own camp with uh, the likes of Gordon Strong, John Palmer, John Blickman. So, JP. Uh, so can you talk about uh, your experience there? Yeah. You know, I went to the, uh, the National Brew Conference when it was in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And while I was there, John Palmer was called in to fill in for somebody who wasn't able to show up. Okay. And he was telling us what's coming out and what was in the, the new version of the book. John Palmer being a second stringer. So in the fourth edition of How to Brew? Right. So then what he came out and said was one of the things that you can do hmm. is realize that if you don't have enough room in your mash tune, then what you want to do is use the results of the first mash as the feed water for the second one. Okay. And the gravity you get out of each mash is additive. So if you get 40 gravity points out of the first, Hmm. you do it again, guess what? You end up with 80 gravity points. That's a big old beer. And so you can do what you need to get a really big beer, even if you don't have the equipment ready for it. So that one stuck on. I tried that about two or three times on my own. And then I started, I read about the boot camp that uh, BYO was doing in Indianapolis. Mm. And I said, you know, I've got myself where I've I've sort of learned. I think I know what I'm doing. I think I've got my act together. But I need to verify that with somebody who really give me a good reality check. Mm. So what I did was I signed up and they had two full day sessions that were limited to about 35 people in each session. First one was with a team of John Palmer and John Blickman. And they, so that was on Saturday for me. And they did the basics of mashing. And the next day I did uh, with Gordon Strong. And he did advanced techniques in mashing. And both of these were fantastic opportunities. You, you also got to bring along your own beer. So think about it this way. You're, you're handing your beer to Don Palmer and Gordon, Gordon wow. Strong saying, hey, tell me what you think of my beer. Yeah. And that, that was sort of a, a strange experience by itself. But these guys are, are really helpful and really, I mean, they're just nice people to begin with. Yeah. And they set up equipment. Uh, they set up the equipment in the back of the hotel conference room. Oh, wow. And we did, did, did mashes right there. So we were actually looking at and testing out everything that they were telling us about. Jeez. So you guys are mashing in, the, in a hotel conference room? That just yeah. So yeah. What, did, what did you mash in? Were you, were you mashing in coolers? Was there propane, oh, this, electricity? How did no, that go? No, no, this is John Blickman. Was going, he, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, like, John. He, John Blickman will probably describe himself as a beer geek. Huh. He just loves putting equipment together and doing. Now he had all of his setups there. He had a brew easy setup there. He did a, ba- a brew in a bag there, and then he did a three vessel system. And they just had them all set up in the back, using electric um, burners, electric heat, and um, induction burners for where they needed to do some additional stuff. So wow. it was three three full on that one. There were three different setups all going. Uh, while we were having our lectures and, and discussions about different mashing techniques, it's like it's like it's like if Ringo breaks his arm at a Beatles concert, and they're like, "Hey, does someone from the audience just want to come play drums 
for me and John over here. Anyone? Yeah. By the way, did you bring your did you bring your own drums to share? I'd like to see how you do your drums. <laughs> I'm not really good with music metaphors. <laughs> Actually, you know what? You know what I want to know is that that conference where like someone couldn't make it, so they're like, "Well, why don't we try and get John Palmer?" Who was the guy that like couldn't show up? Like that John Palmer is the like come in and replace for like the guy. Yeah, I think you're you think you're 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 going at it from the wrong angle. They had a no show on oh, okay. the presenter, and then they scrambled around, and Palmer was there, and because he was there for other reasons, I guess, and he said, "Ah, yeah, I'll go. I'll talk about what's coming up in my new book." So, so he's not the sloppy seconds. He's just the guy who could give a talk without any preparation in ten minutes' time. Absolutely, and nice enough uh-huh. to do it, man. He could probably talk for days without even get, doing any prep information on it. So you said uh, at this BYO camp, you went to get kind of confirmation on your matching principles. And what they did right. is share with you the things that you basically cared a whole lot about that didn't, you didn't need to care about. What were some of those things? Well, when you get into some of the, the again, worrying about the details of what, spe- what exact temperature your mash is at. Mm. I mean, Gordon Swan made a pretty good visual on it. He had this one long stem thermometer, and he just went around in his mash tune and just hit all these different spots in there, mm-hmm. and we read out what temperatures you were getting. Sure. And there, there's probably about a 10-degree temperature difference. So all this fixation, if you get to 149.5, your mash is ruined or silly. Those things don't really matter. The other one that got me, this whole, all the exercises that you're trying to do of adjusting your mash pH after you've started mashing mm. is really a waste of effort. Okay. By the time you take your measurement, and by the time you figure out what you need to do to adjust the pH, mm. the mash has already been converted. It's too late. Yeah. So the only thing their advice was worry about it the next time. So Don't worry about it the first time. I that is just good advice for life. Just in general, you make a mistake, you move on, and you learn from it. The thing I've learned is you can't go into this hobby or craftsmanship, whatever you want to call it, yeah. with the idea that you're going to do it perfectly each time, and you're not going to get a good brew. If you get a good brew with the first one, first time you try a recipe, that's mm. pure luck. Right. It's, it takes a number of times of brewing it to really get a good handle on what's going on and fine-tune. Dial in what it is you're trying to do. Yeah. Consistency. Uh, good beer. Anyone can make good beer if you make enough beer, even on your first time. But I think consistency takes practice, like with, like with anything else. Well, you know, I, this whole hobby, whatever you want to call it, this mm. is an uh, obsession of mine <laughs> that I'm into. Honestly. You go from either a hobby to a, a passion to becoming a craft that you're following mm. and then maybe at some point you're going to get to the point where it's your it's an artistic endeavor and you're creating something that's really fantastic yeah and you're going to have an evolution going there but if you don't get it to the where you can repeat things you just get it's a uh, a random act that if you come out with something that's here fairly good yeah you got to get to where you have a repeatable process well, I think we, we touched upon pH, or you touched upon pH, and that's one of the 
the ways to get super re- repeatable beer. What are you doing before a brew day to try to make sure you're not noticing your pH is off too late? Well, the first thing I do is I, I always measure my water bef- uh, the night before is my routine. Okay. So I, I've got the uh, brew lab, the um, Lamotte's um, little chemical um, lab. Sure. And I use that to get exact readings on all of my minerals uh, the, the day before. All right. So I know before I even start exactly where I'm starting from. Then depending upon the type of beer I'm trying to brew, I've yeah. got different targets of what I want to reach for each of those, that chemical makeup on things. pH is just one of them. It's certainly the, uh, the calcium, magnesium, but more importantly, mm. the uh, chloride and the sulfide ratio okay. is critical to me. Yeah. And so what I'm doing is laying out a plan to get to that. And so I'll, I'll do that. And then I use things like Beersmith. I, I find it's been pretty good. I've used broom water. That's with good results. These tools that you can use to predict what that mash pH is going to be. What's the what's the water source that you're using? Tap water. Ooh. Yeah. That... Now, you guys have a problem. You guys, you're... Well, I have many problems, sir. <laughs> well, I mean, your alkalinity is, is out, of the, out of the world. I yeah. Mean. Well, we've that struggled. That's what they were demonstrating in the, in the hotel room when they were brewing. So what they do is use RO. That's what we do. We start with RO water, and then we yeah. we adjust from there. But but honestly, up to this point, we've just been using beer dust because we're lazy. But I just downloaded the brew and water software that you referenced, and I haven't gotten into the Beersmith tools. We do use Beersmith too. Yeah. But I'm trying to keep it simple. For someone just getting into water, chemistry, is there low-hanging fruit or, or, or what can you do to just like make sure – because I feel like you can do a lot of things to make sure certain chemicals are present to make sure the water profile is just right for this flavor or that flavor. But if you're just trying to control pH, what's, what, what are you paying attention to? All right. The main thing you're trying to get is you, you want to have the pH during the match between 5.2 and 5.6, say. Okay. That, that's really the range that you're aiming for. By the time it moves from the mash to the kettle and then from the kettle to the carboy, it's going to have additional drops for the one you can control is in the mash. Mm, right. So you want to have it somewhere between 5.2 and 5.6. If you're going with a lighter colored beer, then you want to aim at the 5.2. If sure. you want something that's going to be pretty dark, go for the 5.6. And that's that's really it'd be as much as you really got to focus on at first. Okay. The, the minerals are important only in the sense that you don't want to get them to the point where they're too high and they start making your beer minerally mm. and having off flavors. If you're below that, which most people are going to be, then worry about the, the, the fine-tuning of that on the next go-around or next, when you advance to the next step of brewing. If you're just starting off, just try and get the pH in the right range. Somewhere in there. It doesn't have to be exact, but uh, get it to that point, and then you'll come out with good beer. And then how are you measuring pH in the match? pH meter, a digital pH meter. Hey, have you – so if someone's trying to save a little money, are the like the beer pH trips worthwhile, or is it just a good investment not to really. get that? No, they, they're not accurate enough. What you've got to do is get down to a low enough accuracy that you can actually tell something. The strips don't really do that. Okay. They're not going to get you to the point where you can make – informed decisions all right absent a ph meter then your best bet is to use the tools to predict something that's going to be within the range that you need and the tools will allow you to do things like put in gypsum or uh Mm. calcium chloride to get it down to the right level and you get 
a, a good start there and then just go with go with that sure well i think it's, it's kind of interesting like uh, i don't know how many people entering into the hobby when they first start out realize the depth and the amount of knowledge there is out there on recreating water tables like trying to recreate the water of a specific locality because of how important that water might have been to the specific flavor of a beer. And maybe if part of me thinks that some of that's kind of legend, but like it's really hard for me to get into water chemistry because then I look at the books about the water tables across the world. I'm like, I will obsess over this. I know I'm going to spend way too much time on this, but it's so freaking cool to think like, oh, I'm going to make a, a a Scottish pale, or I guess uh, like an English pale, so I can recreate the specific water table with minerals and try and get the pH correct for this specific river where there was a brewery 200 years ago. I, I'm just, this is a wild let me, let me uh Allow me to burst that bubble if okay. I could. You're going down a path that's not productive. That's basically with, all I do. <laughs> well, this is a perfect hobby, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> fair point. The reality is that the brewers in each of these locations, these famous historical locations, were treating their water anyway. Hmm. So to say that I'm going to use uh, Pilsen's water hmm. doesn't say what they were doing. They did a whole bunch of stuff. They They used decoction, mashing. They did a whole bunch of different techniques to treat their normal situation. All of them, think about the English ones. They they basically the ones that came up with the whole idea of the gypsum and everything that goes in there. They yeah. were treating the water. So knowing what the local water might even been then doesn't really answer the question. That there's a cube that John Palmer's new book has in there. I don't know if you've heard about this. Hmm. You've no. got three dimensions that they deal with. Okay. The one is calcium. And it goes, it tells you how much calcium you have in there. And that either gives a soft beer or a firm beer. Okay, nice. Okay, then then there's uh, residual alkalinity. And that either tells you whether you're going to have a light colored beer or a dark colored beer. Okay. And then the the final one is the ratio of sulfate to chloride. And that tells you whether you're going to be having a hoppy beer or a malty beer. By knowing those... What you can do is lay out a plan on how am I going to get in that spot on that three-dimensional cube that makes sense for the beer I'm trying to brew. And that's that's really helped a lot. I mean, that simple. you can go crazy over this. You can go into tremendous detail and really drive yourself uh, bonkers trying to get exactly the right mixture of things. And, and that's not really where you should try and go. You should try and just get something in that ballpark. And, and again, record what you did so yeah. you can use it on the next one. That actually, so this is a question that sort of occurred to me when when we're talking about the time of the mash and then doing an iterative mash. So yeah. when you when you're doing an iterative mash and you're talking about the length of time that the wort is being boiled or not boiled, right. but the length of time the wort is hot. Um, right. Not wort. The mash. The length of time. Good lord. Jason, wake up. The length of time <laughs> the wort is being heated, it, that's slowly chopping down the sugars into more and more simple sugars. So when you do this iterative mash, and that wort from the first round of mashing, I, which I assume at this point is wort, is going into that second mash, 
How do you, is that taken, I'm assuming that's being taken into account that that original batch of uh, mash is going to continue getting chopped down more so than that second batch? It, it's, it's, yes. Okay. But hang on. Here's, here's the key thing on this. Okay. okay. And I, I'm going to dive down into some of the weeds here. Okay. But you got the beta amylase. Okay. And that's the stuff that operates at a lower temperature. Okay. And what it does is chops so it only has two molecule pieces of sugar. Okay. Maltose is what it makes. And you can take it from anywhere, any end of the sugar, uh, the starch molecule, mm. and chop off the last two. The um, alpha amylase, all it does is it chops randomly everywhere except right next to a branch. Mm. And it basically chops in a random length pieces. But that results in a lot of stuff that's longer and doesn't ferment very easily. Okay. Sure. The limit dextrinase is what it does is it takes the branches and chops them apart. So now what's happened when the limit does its thing, this branch thing that the beta wasn't able to get to now has a lot more things accessible to it. Okay. That what goes on is when you when you raise up, when you're doing this uh, reiterated mash, mm -hmm. you can go at one temperature and you're going to have a whole bunch of wort left over. And it may be long branches. It may be maybe because of the limit dextrin, we probably wouldn't have a whole bunch of branched sugar mm -hmm. molecules. You're going to have a bunch of straight ones. That's going to be put into the beta amylase of the second mash. And it'll go crazy and start chopping those up. So it's going to take the stuff from the first one as well as the one from the second one and produce a whole lot more of the maltrose. Okay. Which is going to then attenuate out. Yeah. So if, if you're trying to do like a sweet beer it using yeah. like a big sweet beer, like say I want to do a barley wine or a, or a big right. imperial stout – and you want it to finish high, like 1020 or 1024, something like that, and have a lot of that kind of body, would you right. recommend that second mash stay stay pretty high so that you you get less of that, that beta action? Yeah, I do both mashes up about 158, one, something like that. I want to do them both high so that by the time you're putting the grains in there, most of, uh, most of the beta is denatured okay. and not going to really have much impact. And then when you do that for both of them, and you're going to end up with something that's uh, going to be a thicker final gravity. Okay, this is it's, it's actually funny because b before the show, Aaron's like, "I'm going to get, I'm going to ask really technical questions, so you have to keep things light and keep things for like people that don't want super technical stuff." And then <laughs> here I am. I was super curious about it. So this is the time of the show where to lighten things up. I like to ask uh, ask our guest. Well, no, actually, uh, Aaron I mean, asks our guest uh, <laughs> uh, uh, an off the wall question, ladies and gentlemen. Aaron's off the wall question. Take it away, Aaron. We have flipped the script. So, what I want to know uh, for the Aaron's off the wall question, the first ever Aaron's off the wall question is <laughs> is Basically, every question I've thought of so far has to do with beer. The idea behind the off-the-wall question is that it has nothing to do with beer. So what I want to know is if you were going to go back to school today, would you ride the school bus? Would you walk to school or would you have your parents take you? <laughs> oh, 
school bus. The school bus. And, you yeah, know, right. let's really dive in here. Why are you taking the school bus? Because it's awesome sit in the back. No, because you got you to gotta have that social interaction. And for, to begin with, keep in mind, my answer is biased because I'm, I'm a big introvert. Okay. Right? Even having this interview is, is challenging, but that, that, that's me. All right. And I that's why we have if I had more social interaction, I would be more comfortable in those things. So as a kid, I'd get on the school bus and I'd get ridiculed and I'd get beat up or whatever, but I'd get involved in that and, and be part of that uh, social network. Well, I mean, I think before the show, you talked about how you joined your homebrew club because you brewed for about a year and then you felt like, hey, I, I got to get better. I, I need help. And so you're looking for that type of interaction. After the break, I want to talk with you a little more about why you joined the homebrew club and how that's improved your brewing. talked a, a little bit before the break about how you uh, joined your homebrew club to help get better. Can you talk about the ways in which being a part of a homebrew club has improved you as a brewer? Yeah, and I think it's, uh, it's, it's pretty dramatic, actually. Um, when, you, when you think about things, like I was talking about earlier, you're going from a hobby to something that you're obsessed with to a craftsmanship to a, um, an artist rendition. Mm. You, you're evolving as you're going through this. I think you can only go so far on the hobby of doing things by yourself. I read every book out there. I read Palmer's book. I read uh, Ray Daniels. I read the uh, Gordon Stone's, all four of the element books. Wow. I yeah. took things as far as I could by myself. Mm. And then I, I looked around and I found this local group that was a uh, beer club. And I went in there and I, you know, I thought I'd impress them all. I said, you know, I'm thinking about uh, brewing a lager. To, to let you know how advanced I am. <laughs> it's going to be cold fermented. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, the point I'm getting at is then mm. when I got in this group and started listening to people. Now, keep in mind, with my beer club, we've had three or four people that have gone professional where they've moved in and actually moved into the profession doing things on a, for pay, which is sort of neat. But, but more importantly, what happened was as you went in there, we have a structure where we do education for one part of the meeting. Mm -hmm. Then we have people in all four corners where they bring their beer and they get a critique. And then we do a general share. But the club also does things like uh, happy hours and brewery trips, and big brew competitions. There's a lot of things that, that the club does. The point I'm getting is you can get involved in these things and use what parts you need to help round out what you're doing. One of the things that this club did was they had a study group for the BJCP exam. A number of people were trying to go that route. And, and that that's where we got into a lot of detailed discussions of exactly what's going on with all these and tested out different commercial products to see what they were like and how do you judge that different category. Mm -hmm. And that, that, to me, made a, a vast difference in getting me more aware. And, and the, the way I learned, I take the error of the day mm -hmm. and find out what I was doing wrong and then try to research that and get help from people telling me, okay, well, this sounds like this is a sanitation problem or this one, you didn't finish fermenting this uh, oatmeal stout, and that's why they're exploding all over your your cabinets in the kitchen. <laughs> um, 
That one, I still hear about that from my wife. But uh, yeah, we have white cabinets, of course. Too. I feel like so. We, let's hold on. Let's it stop like there. Delicious yeah. cabinets I now. Feel, an oatmeal stout explosion is something we need to hear more about. All right, I didn't. This again when I'm on my own trying to figure out what I'm doing. Yeah, I got it down in my what I thought. Well, it's not getting to the final gravity that I want. Eh, sure. That's close enough. What the heck? It's only a number. It doesn't matter. Well, I had a whole lot of fermentable stuff left in there that over the uh, month or so that those things were in the bottle that mm. finished fermenting. And so when I would open them up, you know, people would come back to me after I'd given them some beers and they'd say, that really tasted great, but I only had about one third of the bottle that I could drink because <laughs> everything else came gushing out. <laughs> I've had a couple, I, you know, my, I got really lucky. The first five or six beers we made were beautifully bottle conditioned, and I was doing a lot of math and trying to get the volumes exactly right. So I even made a beer for my wife that was like that was carved at three volumes, and it was, you know, it poured really nice, and I was super excited. And then I had like three in a row where I had gushers for, and I made it basically a different mistake every time. You know, there's a mistake I heard about, man, and I really experienced it. Um, it's, it's you start off with everything clean and all new equipment, all new plastic, all the rest of that. And wow, everything's great. There are no scratches in any of that. Sure. <laughs> There's no places for the bacteria to really build up. So you get the overconfident. You're going along thinking, hey, I got this, th- I got this thing nailed. And then the scratches get in there and the bacteria has uh, finds out that you really aren't that thorough in your sanitation. Right. And, oh, I, I had a whole year of, you know, how many batches am I going to have to dump because of gushing beer? And um, I also had the distinction. One batch I had built a, uh, it came out with worms and there's some bacteria that it looks like rope. That oh, wow. In your beer. Real, real strong vinegar taste, too. It's somewhat, sort of nasty. But so you're making wine. Really I good. haven't seen that since then. Cool. That's I, that that would freak me out. Like, <laughs> well, you know what it does? It makes you say, "Okay, this is obviously not a good attribute to my beer." Yeah. So now, what what's wrong? What caused it? And <laughs> I go down some branch of exploration, whether it was a pH, or if I thought it was that, or whether it was whatever. And then you learn a little bit more about. Uh, so eventually, you hit all the all the areas, and you come out knowing some stuff about this. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll share my uh, another mistake just in case it, it helps in the future. The most recent gushing beer that I had, it was as simple as the uh, it was a really hoppy beer, and the measured volume in the in the fermenter was much lower than the predicted volume. And I took the amount of corn sugar from the predicted volume and not the measured ah, volume, okay. and boom, she goes. Aha! Uh-huh. I was pretty annoyed because it was a good beer up before it. Uh, <laughs> Well, if I if I can circle back on one thing I did want to mention about yeah. the beer clubs. Sure. Um, mine, mine helped a lot in just education stuff. The other thing, that if your beer club has competitions, club competitions, enter every one of those that you can. Uh, you're going to get structured feedback on what it is, and you're going to find out whether or not your problem is the body, you're not attenuating enough, or you're not getting the right flavor. You're going to get feedback that's pretty valuable. I lost, I, I, I can't remember how many things I had scores of below 25 in the, the rating stuff. Uh, it was pretty, pretty dismal beers, but I learned a lot from getting that feedback. So I, that would be 
Yeah, now you're a gold a gold medal medal winner. Actually, that leads into a, a question that I had for you. Jason and I are doing a really cool thing with our homebrew club. Actually, tomorrow night. So Jason and I are going to enter our first ever homebrew competition, uh, and it's an interesting competition because it's it's called Mash of Wonder, and uh, the premise Mash here is that of wonder. Jason wrote the song. Yeah. It's official. Um, the the uh, you, we're rolling dice to determine our ingredients, and then all the beers are going to be entered into the experimental beer category. Okay. So I thought that'd be a fun way to get into competition because you know it's like a little a little bit less pressure. You have a little less control. But uh, in general, I think we've been hesitant to jump into competition. So if you were going to give us or other brewers who have never done a competition some pre-competition advice, you know, what would you what would you let us know? Well, the, the biggest thing is don't be worried about the score you're going to get. Sure. If, if anything else, you can hide it from anybody else. So <laughs> you don't have to admit what your score was. And, and don't only enter beers that are in your comfort zone. Okay. Use it to get outside your comfort zone. Brew something that you never thought you would like hmm. and see what the heck happens because that's how you're going to learn on it. Absolutely. That'd be my two pieces of advice. Well, I think hopefully for this, this is the first of, of many competitions. So I, I think we'll definitely take that advice and, and maybe try to put some uh, hardware up on our shelves uh, like you've done as well. So like, so like we're, you were saying earlier before the show, you're not really necessarily a hophead yourself. So um, speaking outside, so I'm, I'm assuming like IPAs and that ilk outside of your comfort zone have you entered those into a competition um I, yeah we've had some where you, you didn't have a choice okay so you had we had a number of ones that um, you were trying to replicate somebody else's recipe okay and or we've had other ones where you were given the recipe and it was just a competition to see what type oh. of technical comp uh who could brew what it was more of the techniques than it was the actual recipe. Man. Wow, I like that. Yeah. We've hit a lot of different approaches. We had another one that was uh, like um, the food chef uh, competitions where they gave you four ingredients and then you had to include three of them in your beer. Okay. And so that's similar to what we're doing we're except we're want. rolling dice. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. yeah. So, it's, <laughs> so, I mean, those, those are the things that make you try some other things. But like you said, I'm, I'm not a hophead. I, I consider hops to be a necessary evil. Huh. Uh, but I, I, I see the value. There was one that came across, what was it, uh, Nelson Savan. Have you heard of that? Hop? Yeah, absolutely. I had not come across that before until we, we had a competition that required we used it. Mm. And that thing is neat. That's like Sauvignon Blanc wine in your beer. It's, it's pretty neat. I'm changing my opinion on hops. <laughs> I feel like the old world hops for me, the British hops, the the, the European hops, I, I mean, I will just gush over some Galaxy or from some American Citra hops in an IPA. Like, I am a, I am a hop head. But I really enjoy also just like a nice British hopped pale. Mm-hmm. So let's circle back to your homebrew club one more time. You talked about your uh, the BJCP or the Beer Judge Certification Program classes, and I, w- I wanted to kind of bring up, we have a listener question each time on the show, and this kind of uh, fits nicely in with that. So our listener today is uh, Brian, and Brian is actually in the coffee industry. Hey, Brian. Hey, Brian. Thanks for the question. Brian is in the coffee industry, and one of the things he struggles with is communicating coffee flavors to people who just are like, oh, this taste of coffee. Um, <laughs> so, you know, when you guys are 
uh, in your homebrew club and you're studying for the BJCP, you might be bringing in new members. How do you kind of enhance the beer language to kind of communicate what you're tasting to people who might not have that same tasting experience? Yeah, a big part of it is making an association with some sensation that you've gotten with a name that you can then call that up and, and, and use that for other parts. So it's, it's not something that on day one you can describe a flavor mm. and say, okay, everybody understands that. Sure. But if you can relate it to something like, you know, where you always say it's uh, popcorn butter or uh, whether it's a Band-Aid or whatever, those are just trying to explain those things in a way that you some something you can relate to and then identify what that taste is. I let me correct myself. A taste is I learned in some another class. There's only five tastes. Sure. And but it's flavors that are the things that hit all the things that you're talking about. Mm. So it's identifying the flavor you're you're sensing is what's critical. And that's going to be the scent as well as the, uh, the taste. There definitely was like I remember uh one of the times we were at a homebrew club uh, here locally, or they, they're talking about acetaldehyde and how it tastes like green apples. And I saw Aaron's eyes light up, and he's like, "Oh yeah, I've tasted that and this and this." And like, uh, you know, it was like a, it. it was cool. Yeah, it, you can relate to some. Uh, there's another thing they have is the. Have you heard about the um, the off flavor tape uh, test? Yeah, well, the, you can buy like an off flavor kit. Right. We haven't done it yet. Yeah. And we, we did that, and, and there, there you, you really can get uh, some pretty good indication of what they're talking about on these different ones. And that, again, my, my taste palate is so bad that I really need a lot of help in that. So that, that's what uh, I had to have something to help me identify what it was that people were saying, uh, oh, this is like you know, a baby vomit or whatever. So, <laughs> Um, if, if there's, if, if there's a baby vomit flavor in the off flavor yeah. kit, I'm going to, I'm going to skip that taste. I do. Yeah, I wonder who the first person was like, Oh, it tastes like baby vomit. And like everyone else in the room is just sitting there like, how the fuck do you know? I'm mean, like, do you remember what it was? Like we all, I mean, cause we all tasted that right at some point. It's smell only. You don't have to taste it. <laughs> yeah. It's touche. There's something like, I don't know. I kind of remember. I don't know if this is true, but it, my dad talking about Roy Orbison being like uh, me with my goddamn music stories. But Roy Orbison, <laughs> according to my dad, was tone deaf. And so he had no idea if he was actually singing the song correctly sound wise. So he would just have to record it and play it back to himself over and over again until it kind of sounded right to him. <laughs> and whether or not that's true, I have no idea. Shout out to my dad, I guess. But at the end of the day, he kept doing it, and eventually he made some pretty kick-ass tunes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. If you have any on recording, we might uh, throw them in the uh, the break there today, Jason. Oh, I <laughs> don't think those are public domain, Aaron. Oh, well, that's, that's Mr. Watching. Pretty Woman right there. Well, oh, sorry. Oh, so you no mentioned more. that a, hey, a can couple... I hit, can I hit you guys up with one more technical thing on mashing? Oh, yeah, yeah, bring it bring it back. One of the thing I did want to hit on is a thing Gordon Strong calls his round trip mash. Okay. And you know normally when we mash stuff, we start at the lower temperatures and then go up to the higher temperatures. Yeah. Well, that, if you think about what's going on with the enzymes, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, so what he, what he does, he came up by accident. He discovered this round trip thing. He goes up to like 155, 158. Mm -hmm. Sure. 
he realized that that had happened. He said, oh, my God, and I didn't want to throw out the batch. So what he said was he turned it off and just recirculated water through the mash until it got down to 140. Okay. And then he brought it back up and then mashed out. All right, so he did the, that round trip. He got the driest, most attenuated mash that he had ever had by doing that. So and I've done so, that now about three times, and he's yeah. right. It, it, it basically chops up all the long stuff mm-hmm. and then goes down back with what's left of the beta to chew up all that, and you end up with something. That, um, the ones in the carboy right now has gotten to about 88% attenuation. So basically, if I understand correct, the the prevailing knowledge is that when you go up to those higher temperatures, you kill or inactivate beta amylase. And it it doesn't do that stuff anymore. But what Gordon Strong found By that out that stuff you mean chop shit up, chop shit up, make make dry, make sugars for fermentation, <laughs> make dry, right. make dry, make it dry as whatever. Yeah. But what Gordon Strong found out almost by accident is that if you go up to 158, you're not going to kill all of them. And then if you circle back down to 140, you've basically just primed all those longer sugars to be crushed by that beta amylase the second time through. Right. Now, what happens is once it gets up to the higher temperature, the beta, it gets denatured. And it's, it bends its shape. It's, no, it's dead. It's no longer going to do any good. But not all of it gets killed. Sure. So you may be down to like 25% of what you had to begin with when you get down to the 140 again. But that's enough to chop up stuff and, and make it pretty interesting. So is that a longer mash? Not really. Uh, it took me about 45 minutes to go from 158 down to about 140, and then about 15 more minutes to go back up. So it doesn't take – it's not a longer big mash. Now, let me throw one final twist that, that this is something I'm playing around with. Okay. Hit me combine with that, it. Combine that with the reiterated mash. Reiterated mashes don't have to be at the same temperature. Right. So do your first one at a high temperature. Oh, and then you're going to get all the beta amylase. one at 140. Yeah, because you're going to get all the beta amylase from the second set of grain. Yeah. 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 I got 91% attenuation by doing Jesus. that. Ooh, that is the next Colts, Jason. <laughs> we are doing that to the next Colts. So, so what do you got when you're when you're doing your re- reiterative mash? So you're not making yeah. you're not making like I, Imperial Pales. Uh, what do you got going on? What are you making? Well, I'm normally doing it for things like uh, a Belgian quad okay. or a I've, – I've been doing it for anything that gets me into a higher gravity. So I'm doing a Maybach that I use it for. I do it for a barley wine. I've done it for a uh, bearded guard. Man, okay, done, nice. Uh, about six or seven of them that, that basically need the reiterated part. The bearded guard and the, um, the quad, I did the two different temperatures on. And and really got some nice drying out on that. How big are those beers at, because of all that dryness? Well, you start well. I mean, you're starting at well. I, I guess about eight or nine percent would be what I would say. I'm starting at seventy two or so, eighty six and one for my specific gravity, and I'm getting down below one, below uh, one hundred one point oh one. Yeah, that's yeah. that. That's amazing. This, I mean, it's super exciting to talk about because some of these kind of some of these styles, Aaron and I have sort of just kind of dreamed about approaching because we didn't think we'd be able to hit the the gravity in any kind of volume that would matter. Like we might be able to get a high gravity half a gallon. Yeah, like we did a we did a thirteen percent 
two-gallon beer. <laughs> hey, but don't forget, you know, on some of those, you can mash once and then use extract. Right. And, oh, yeah. yeah. And that'll, it's not going to, you're going to get the flavors of the, the mash, uh, but the extract will give you the body. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's, a, I, I always like, for, you know, I'm just very jilted against using extract. I, I shouldn't be, when we did this Kolsch and we only got like 50% efficiency because we stopped the mash too soon, Jason was like, throw some LME in there because I have some LME in there uh, in the basement for when I was going to do starters and uh, I just, I can't bring myself to do it. <laughs> I think I, I'm, well, you know, oh, sorry. That was something that Gordon Strong talked about. You know, all this stuff is just. These are different techniques, different tools that you have. Sure. You got a tool bag with a whole bunch of different things you can do. Focus on what your end result is. When you're drinking that beer, you don't know whether that beer is from a mash, a reiterated mash, a decoction mash, whatever it is. You know know it's probably not from a decoction mash, though. It is. I think. I think that there is. There is a certain um, when you're when you're a home brewer and you move from extract because we all started in extract, right? Yeah. And you move from extract to all grain. The idea of then taking what you thought was going to be an all grain, you don't hit your you don't hit your gravity. You don't have as much sugar as you want. The idea of then adding extract to it feels like betrayal. I think. I think that's just a thing that we got to get over. Well, here here's the question for you. Yeah. Are you more interested in the craftsmanship where you're learning how to do the techniques and perfecting the, the techniques or are you more interested in getting the beer that you want to drink? And, and neither one of those two goals are bad, but they may not be in the same in the same direction. So, you know, if your main focus is getting a beer that really tastes great, then whatever tool gets you there is good. If you're I mean, worried more about the techniques, then focus on that. I feel like I, I'll take this advice in into the into the next beer. Uh, I feel <laughs> I feel very similar to what you might have felt like when you went to the BYO boot camp and you wanted to have your mashing principles uh, verified, and they kindly let you know that you were worrying about stuff that didn't matter. I feel I feel I feel that. So I want to transition a little bit as we come to a close in the show. You mentioned that your homebrew club has a couple guys that have turned pro, but you also have some family members who own a brewery. And I wanted to hear about what kind of experience like what it's like to be a homebrewer who has family members who brew. Yeah, it's uh, two of my great nephews, uh, Sean and Ryan Araro, have opened up Heritage Brewing in Manassas, Virginia. All right, shout and, out to Heritage and Manassas. And basically, they were home brewing on their own. Now, both of them, um, Sean's in Marines and Ryan's Special Forces Army Ranger that he just got out now. So okay. they're pushing the, the veteran uh, angle a lot, which I think they should. Sure, and absolutely. hire a lot of vets. But basically, what they've been doing is they, they went ahead and bit the bullet and basically bought a 20-barrel system. Wow, and have been base selling all everything they're making, so that's that's probably a good sign. They've gotten into a lot of barrel conditioning. I was oh, out nice. there uh, a couple of months ago and looking at their warehouse, shoved full with uh, barrels that they're aging different product. Uh, they're 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 now they're hop heads. Okay, so they're <laughs> gonna definitely hit into some of that stuff. And so I I I just say yeah, I like your beer and move on. Um, <laughs> 
So do you get the VIP tour since you were a family member oh, and a homebrew? No, you don't know my family. I, I went out there and I said, I wanted to see what your operation was like. So they put me to work. <laughs> uh, shoveling grain into the <laughs> I mean, honestly, oh, gosh. from the perspective of that's someone who doesn't get to walk back and shovel grain in a brewery, I think that's a pretty damn good VIP tour. <laughs> I'll tell you though, it's, it's a lot of hard work. And yeah. but the other thing that people don't realize is that home brewing is one thing, uh, but moving that into a business where you're now responsible for marketing and sales and everything else that goes along with that, that's a whole different can of worms. That's, yeah. that's just a lot more effort. So I, my hat's off to them for pulling that together. Absolutely, absolutely. So, they, and at least they do. They have you cleaning cleaning kegs too, in addition to shoveling grain. No, no. It was, I was at this that one time. They're not getting me back out there to work. So. <laughs> Everything's hoppy, and they just won't let me sit down. Yeah. <laughs> so, do you have any uh, do you have any aspirations of trying to hit them up and having them brew your triple or your Schwartz beer on their system? <laughs> No, I don't think so. Uh, I'm, I'm really happy just doing the uh, the homebrew crafting part of this stuff. And, you know, the, when you start going commercial, you've got so many other factors that get involved in that. They just the recipe is, is almost the minor part of it all. Right. It's really everything else. So I, I'm, I'm not going to stick my, my – give my two cents to them on that. <laughs> My mother-in-law says you shouldn't have an opinion where you don't have responsibility. So perhaps that's some wisdom you're sharing as well. I like that. I like that saying. I have to remember that. I'm gonna now. She has to listen to the episode because I quoted her. That's uh, that's how I trick her. So <laughs> she is a wise woman, Annette. I'm so sorry for swearing as much as I have. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, Joe, this has been an absolute great time. Uh, I know I can. I'm going to speak for Jason and for myself. I've learned I'm a, literally sitting right here. Uh, I'm just trying to wrap. <laughs> so uh, we, we've learned <laughs> we've learned a ton uh, from you, from uh, you know via your experience at the Homebrew Club and at the BYO uh, conference here in Indianapolis, which uh, we didn't uh, get the chance to attend. So um, thank you so much for taking the time to to join us and share. As we wrap up, I want to thank our listeners for listening to the show. If you want to connect with Joe and learn a little bit like we did, you can find him via email. Check the shows for his email address and other fun tidbits from the show. You can also follow the Grist Homebrew Club in Arlington on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Grist Homebrew. We would love to answer your question on our next podcast. If you have a question about brewing or you just want to know where Jason gets his hair done, hit us up by email. We are podcast at platosgravity.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram and untapped at Plato's Gravity. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you download your podcast. But mostly iTunes. Let's, let's be honest. I mean, iTunes is all the podcast traffic. In the meantime, get yourself a pH meter, brew some beer, and have some fun. 